0: If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, we are in the 10th week of a series that we've called uh, Two Friends and One Hero. We're looking at Elijah and Elisha with an aim to getting to Christ. Jesus himself said in Luke 24 that all the law, the prophets, and the writings, they actually find their fulfillment in him. And so we don't go to the scriptures and just look for things to do or nuggets or principles on how to live, but we see how does this fit, how does the story we're looking at now, how does that fit in the bigger story, which is uh, about Jesus Christ. On Friday morning, Christians around our nation and indeed uh, around the world celebrated a moment in history that we won't soon forget. If you were on Facebook for five minutes, you may have had a hard time discerning if this was a good thing or a bad thing that took place, but uh, by all the uh, the vitriol and the debates, but let me assure you what happened was a very good thing indeed. The Supreme Court of the United States uh, reversed Roe v. Wade ending 50 years of federally protected abortions and really paving the way for the greater protection of preborn children uh, than anything we've seen in the last half century. Uh, very yeah, we can, yeah, praise God for that. Yeah. Yes, uh, well, upon hearing of this uh, this great news, you, you may have been inclined we may have been inclined to, to to conclude that this victory for life is really the result of political maneuvering or maybe outstanding airtight argumentation or the right kind of lobbying or the right kind of marching. but none of those was really the reason for this ultimately. Now those things may have played a part, but the, the reason, that the Supreme Court decision went down the way that it did is because it was ordained by the sovereign God before the world was even created. This all happened in the way that it did and at the time that it did according to the hand of our sovereign God. In fact, there's nothing that happens in all the world from the smallest to the greatest of occurrences that happens outside of God's sovereign will. Jesus himself said that even the, the, the falling to the ground of a bird, none of the, nothing happens apart from the Father's will. Now, this is a point made throughout the Bible, but it's a point made very clear in the passage that we're going to be in uh, this morning. So what we do here, if you're new, we just open up the Bible, we read it, and we explain it. We lean in and listen, recognizing that what we're reading is actually the very Word of God. And uh, it's act, you, you might be surprised to hear that this is an unusual approach these days. Uh, but what we do is we believe that when God speaks... We listen. We believe that what God has to say is infinitely more important and more valuable and more insightful and more wise than anything we could ever come up with. So, 2 uh, Kings chapter 5. Let me start by reading uh, verses 1 through 5. Here reads the word of the Lord Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my lord uh, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told uh, his lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Israel the king of Syria, rather, said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So, during the days of Elisha, the nation of Israel was at war with Syria. And, of course, you know, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that this, these two nations have a long history with each other. In fact, they are, in every sense, really hated enemies of one another. Now, at the time of this writing, Syria was making great strides in overpowering and overtaking the nation of Israel. In fact, as we just read, they had killed many of the men and women of Israel and had taken as captives, as slaves, some of the uh, Hebrew children. Well, one of the reasons that Syria enjoyed the success that they did, the military success that the nation enjoyed, was because of the skillful and courageous leadership of a man named Naaman. Naaman was, as the text says, a mighty man of valor. He was a man who was strategic in the way that he led He was a gifted uh, warrior, a people gatherer, again, a courageous man. But lest we get the impression that it was ultimately because of Naaman's leadership or his skill or his strategy or planning that Syria prevailed, the writer of Kings tells us that Syria's victory over Israel was ultimately by God's sovereign design. Verse 1 says, Naaman was a great man with his master and in high favor because, look at this, by him... The Lord had given victory to Syria. So the Lord was the one who gave victory to Syria. The Lord used Naaman as an instrument. Say it differently. The Lord is the one who crushed Israel and caused their defeat. Even the enslavement of the people of Israel to Syria. The Lord is the one who did this. He did this by or through Naaman. All of it is of God. All of it is from God's sovereign hand. God raises up nations, and he brings nations low. God raises up individuals, and he brings individuals low. God is sovereign over all of it, and God's sovereignty has never diminished at all over time. Even our defeats, even our setbacks, even our victories, Even our disappointments are ordained by the hand of a sovereign and loving God. There's nothing in all the world that happens by chance. There's nothing in your life that happens by chance. There's nothing that happens by way of bad luck, random uh, misfortunes. Everything that happens in your life is ordained by a sovereign God. The loss of a job, a job transfer, a bad breakup, a divorce, the diagnosis of a disease, the death of a loved one, a fall of the kitchen, a great storm that arises, a beautiful sunny day. There's nothing that happens apart from God's sovereign will. None of these events are pointless. In fact, they are part of a story that God has written for your life. And if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, all of these things are happening for your good and for God's glory. Naaman has been successful against Israel because God has ordained it. He's moved up the ranks because God has ordained it to be so. Now, not, he's, even though he's this decorated warrior, he's well-respected, he, he's highly regarded. Not all is rosy for Naaman. Naaman has leprosy. Now, when we think about leprosy, we tend to think, we might think of what we would commonly or currently call leprosy, but leprosy in the Bible is actually more of a catch-all phrase. It, it, it covered a variety of elements. It could be uh, it could be some sort of boils or patchy eczema or some sort of uh, you know, skin rash. It was a variety of things, um, psoriasis, a fungus, uh, any of those things that without medication would not easily be healed, or, uh, and they could actually wreak havoc on those who, ha- who, uh, who suffered from that without signs of going away. So if you had leprosy, again, this, this umbrella of skin diseases, you were often sort of a pariah to everyone else, many times cast aside and so on. Well, here is this great warrior who has leprosy and there's a little Hebrew slave girl orphaned by her parents. I mean, orphaned uh, because of the the Syrians. And she says to Naaman's wife, "I I wish that Naaman could see the prophet, the prophet in Israel, by which she means Elisha. I wish that she could see him because she believes that if Elisha could see Naaman, that Naaman, that Elisha would heal him. So as I read that, I just couldn't help but think, what are the? I mean, there's so much in this that just defies really explanation. What are the odds that this little Hebrew slave girl would remember the stories that she'd heard about Elisha, probably when she was three or four years old? What are the odds that she would remember the stories about the prophets? And what are the odds that this high-ranking military officer? This great man of valor would actually listen to the medical advice of a little slave girl. I'm surprised that she didn't get the same treatment that I get from my wife, who's a nurse, whenever I give someone medical advice. She just shakes her head and says, don't. Just don't. That's not your area of expertise. You don't need to be giving people medical advice. I'm surprised that, that the military, uh, this, this officer didn't say, "Look, what, no, don't bring to me the medical advice of a little child. But he, he listened. What are the odds that Naaman would have taken a trip in the middle of a protracted conflict into enemy territory to get his skin disease looked at? The odds of, of these are slim to none, and yet it happens. Why? Again, this is what God ordained. This is what God ordained. One Old Testament scholar writes, when this little girl is snatched from her parents, when she's orphaned, when her village is raised. When she is transported across the border, when she is spotted and chosen as spoil by the the apparently kindly Naaman's wife, all of this uh, caught up in the was caught up in the incredibly intricate sovereign purposes of Yahweh. This is our God, in action. Now, what is our God doing? What's he in action doing? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 12, God identifies a man by the name of Abram, and he says, I'm going to, through you, I'm going to introduce myself to all the nations of the world. Now, Abram, he was not a good guy. He was an idol worshiper. But by his grace and mercy, God identifies this man, and he says, through you, And your seed through your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren. I'm going to make a nation. That nation will become, become known as Israel. And through that nation, all the peoples of the world, that is to say all the nations, all the people groups of the world, will be introduced to me, the only true and living God. This is God's plan that he's had from all along. And here, there were times in this in redemptive history when it looked like there were no messengers of God left. There were none who would go and, and to the surrounding nations and introduce people to this living God. There were times in history when it looked like God had no witnesses to His name and His salvation. But God has always had His messengers, and He's always had this plan. And here in ancient Syria, God inspires a little girl to tell her, her master's wife, about a prophet of God, which seems so remarkable, but again, it's all part of God's plan, his singular plan that he's always had and never been without. Here's our first point this morning. The the missio dei, which is just Latin for the mission of God, is to display to the world the glory of his salvation through a chosen people. So there's never been any time where God is up in heaven. He's sort of trying to figure out, what exactly am I going to do next? I mean, why did I create these people after all? What am I going to do with these people? God has always had this singular mission. God chose Abram, who would be renamed Abraham, and from whom he would make this nation, Israel, that God would scatter in order to display the glory of his name and his salvation. So from the very beginning, God had in mind every nation, every people group, every skin color, every culture from which he would redeem a people to make worshipers of his name. That's the singular mission of God revealed consistently from Genesis to Revelation. And he's determined to use the most unexpected people, in this case, a little Hebrew slave girl, to accomplish that mission. Now, what does it mean for us? Well, at least two things. One, it means that we, as children of God, those chosen by God, pursued by God, reconciled to Him. We're, part of, we're participants in that mission. So God has determined to use you in your station of life, wherever He may have you. He has chosen to use you to advance His mission, to make known the glory of His name and His salvation. You say, well, I, I don't really feel equipped. I don't really know what to do. I don't know what to say. Well, think about this little girl, a, a little girl who's lost her mom and dad, everything she's known, She has the courage to say, I really, she's thinking about the glory of God, the power of God, the prophets of God, and she thinks, I really wish that this great man Naaman could see Elisha because he could heal him. So it means that, partly, it means that we've been called, we've been commissioned as, as part of this mission. So every single Christian is living a life on mission. Now, the second thing it means is because this is God's mission, he will accomplish it, he will see it through. Right now, at this very moment, God is revealing himself to people all over the world. Right now, this same Sunday morning, God is bringing people to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. As one of his own, his chosen ones, shares the gospel with someone else. I got a picture this week from one of our partners in ministry, the the Timothy Initiative, which is a, a church planting ministry that we support. Now They're planting churches in the hardest places in the world. Here's the picture and this, the text from the, the ministry's president read, John, I just returned from, I'm not going to say where because this will be broadcast online, but he said, I just returned from this place where uh, the Timothy Initiative leaders from seven different South, uh, Southeast Asian countries gathered. They're hoping to plant 7,000 new churches, each of these in very difficult nations. Thank you for your incredibly faithful partnership. Thank you to Capshaw K- Baptist Church. This is some of your fruit. So right now, we may think, you know, you look around the world and you look at what's going on, and sometimes it feels like darkness is just overtaking our world. And it seems like the mission of God is, is at best, stalled. But right now, all over the world, this sovereign and all-powerful God is bringing people into saving faith, bringing people into relationship with Himself through His Son. And you may have somebody in your mind right now that you think, this person is beyond hope. This person, there's no chance that God will ever save this person. God may have already set his sights on that person so that it is both possible and certain that at his appointed time, God will bring him to saving faith or God will bring her to saving faith. What we do is we pray. What we do is we talk about Jesus among our friends. What we do is we're open to the mission of God. The mission of God will not be stopped. And here at a time in history when Israel, everything is looking bleak, it looks like God's ambassadors are nowhere to be found. God uses one of his own, again, a little Hebrew slave girl, to tell about his power that he would display throughout the nations. And Naaman actually listens. He's determined to get help from Israel's prophet, but in order for him to go in peace, again, remember this long conflict, in order for him to go in peace, he needs a letter from his king, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad II, that would have to reach the hands of Israel's king, King Jehoram. So look at the last part of verse 5 through verse 7. So he, Naaman, went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read this the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel receives the letter uh, from the king of Syria, and he's just absolutely distraught. I mean, he goes into a, a panic mode. He, he tears his clothes, which is a sign of Fear, a sign of despair. And I don't miss what the writer is doing here. Again, this little girl who had everything taken from her, including her own parents. She remembers the promises of God and the prophets of God through whom God would speak. But the nation's leader, the nation's leader, the king of Israel, who had been told many times about the works of God through the prophets Elijah and Elisha, in fact, everybody in, in, in Israel knew about Elijah. They had heard about Elijah. The nation's leader has no confidence in God. So he, what does he do? He puts a political spin on it. He said, this is not genuine. This is a farce. He said, this is a war tactic. He's just looking for another reason to fight. And then Elisha gets wind of this, of the king's response, and he says, you don't know, do you? There was uh, in my neighborhood growing up in Dayton, Ohio, it wasn't uncommon for houses on my street to be burglarized or broken into. and In fact, we went on vacation one year, uh, one summer, um, and we got back, went to a different state, got back, and we walked in our house, and there's blood all over the walls of our house, and we noticed that someone had punched out the back, one of the back windows of our house and climbed in, but in doing so, uh, he cut himself badly. And So did we walk in, you can imagine the scene. I was like 13 at the time. We walk in, and there's just blood all over the house. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was a, you know, on my street, there wasn't uncommon for uh, drug deals to be done or to go bad. In fact, one of my very good friends, uh, this big, tall, thin African-American guy by Keith, uh, named Keith, uh, he was killed in a, in, a bad, in a drug exchange that went bad. And so there was a lot going on there. There was a saying in my neighborhood, uh, it, it went like this, if you don't know, you better ask somebody. And the, the point of that was, you don't know who you're dealing with. You know, I would see people get in fights. It wasn't, again, it wasn't uncommon at all. Well, this is essentially what Elisha says to the king. He says, if you don't know, you better ask somebody. You don't understand. You don't realize who's in your corner here. You don't realize what you're dealing with. Do you not know that there's a prophet in Israel? Do you not know there's a living God who has his ambassadors do you not know who I am as the prophet of God? Why are you fretting like this? And then it just keeps getting better. Look at verses 9 through 12. Uh, well, but verses 8 through 12. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away, and look at that last phrase, in a rage. He went away in a rage. Now, if a dignitary wanted to make a major entrance, he would arrive by way of horse and chariot. And you could hear him coming a mile away. The horses and the chariots made a lot of noise. In the Bible, horses and chariots are symbols of power and authority, and Naaman doesn't just show up with a couple of uh, horses and chariots. He has a full entourage with him. Horses and chariots, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Now, we don't use those measurements I- anymore, but that's an incredible amount of wealth. That's 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. 150 pounds of gold. Back then, that much gold would have been the equivalent of the annual wages of 600 men. Uh, I looked at, on Friday before I left, I I, I looked at uh, today's market in terms of gold. So as of June 24th, that would be worth over $4 million in gold. So he comes with this incredible amount of money. He's brought this incredible amount of wealth with him to Elisha's modest little house. And Elisha won't even answer the door. He doesn't even come to the door. He can't even be bothered to go to the door. Now, in the ancient Near East, this was a terrible, terrible offense. Inhospitality was a major offense. Several years ago, Janine and I had lunch with this young couple. They were newly married, and they were just trying to figure things out, you know, in their marriage. Of course, it takes a lifetime to do that, but they had asked for our counsel on something. And um, she was Chinese and raised in Indonesia. He was from rural North Carolina, so they had to navigate some very, some starkly different uh, sort of cultural understandings, which caused more than a few, um, you know, marital disagreements. Uh, For example, before the couple got married, the husband, to be he never met his wife's parents. They never met his in-laws. And the first time uh, they were were in Indonesia, the first time they came over to meet him uh, was right before uh, the wedding. And they saw him, they watched him sort of bound into the house with his shoes on. And they were absolutely scandalized by this. So they pulled their daughter away. It was just hours before they were to get married. They pulled their daughter away and they said, you're, you're making a huge mistake here. This guy is a barbarian. I mean, this guy is the most uncivilized person we've seen. Why would you marry somebody who wears their shoes in the house? They just couldn't get over this. They couldn't understand it. Well, what they didn't realize, in, in some parts of North Carolina, if you wear shoes at all, if you wear shoes at all, and not everybody does, um, you wear your shoes all the time. I guess as a guy from Alabama, I shouldn't be making fun of North Carolinians. Um, but if you wear shoes at all, you wear them all the time. And so they didn't understand that. It took a lot of discussion, a lot of you know, interaction. One of the other things they couldn't get over was sometimes they'd be sitting in the house and somebody would knock on the door. And the husband-to-be, he wouldn't even get up. He'd just sit there. He wouldn't get up at all. And he'd just wait. They would knock and knock. And so they were absolute. again, they were outraged, outraged by this. This was a terrible uh, offense. If someone knocked on the door in their culture, you got up immediately and you answer the door. Well, that's the way it was in the ancient Near East. So here you have this decorated soldier standing out in front of Elisha's house, knocking on the door. And Elisha, again... He won't even be bothered to answer. He sends his servant instead, who opens the door, just a sliver, and says, Hey, go wash in the River Jordan seven times and be healed. Well, Naaman is incensed. He's furious with Elijah. He went away in a rage. Why did Elisha take this approach? Was he just kind of too busy? You know, too busy to get up? Was he playing a video game? Was he just too comfortable to get up? No, there was actually, this was very intentional. This is a calculated move by the prophet. He's trying to bring Naaman down a few notches. Uh, Old Testament scholar Gary Miller writes, we must not miss the fact that Elisha is rude on purpose. He means to get under Naaman's skin, and he does. Sometimes it takes shock tactics to get through to others And the great news is that Yahweh, which is the the name for Israel's God, the name of God, is more than prepared to do what it takes to break through pride and stubbornness to force humans to humble themselves before the living God. Elisha gives Naaman some good news by way of his servant. Go to the river Jordan and be healed, but Naaman won't receive it. He's so angry that Elisha has ignored him and that, he's, that Elisha was not impressed with Naaman's credentials and resume. Now, here's what's going on in this passage. This is our second point. The good news of God's salvation will only be considered good by those who have been brought low and thus see themselves as bad. There is in every one of us a sense that I can do this, Whatever it is, I can do this if I just try hard enough. I have the ability, if I just lock down, if I just dig deep, if I just try harder, if I just sort of tap into that inner strength, I can do this. And, of course, you know, with the age of, with the enlightenment and the age of achievement and all these things, we're constantly being bombarded, really for the last 150 years at least, with these messages that tell us over and over that you can do this. You have the ability. The key is believing in yourself. The key is being true to yourself. All this leads, to, leads us to conclude that the solution to our problems is greater focus, greater effort, a deeper trust in our own ability, our own goodness. But as we embrace that approach, you know, believe in yourself and just try harder, actually things only get worse. They don't get better we don't actually do better, we don't find peace, we don't feel that we've made it any closer to God, we don't make the sort of progress that we desire, and we don't feel like things are right between us and God. And the fact of the matter is things will never be better, so to speak, things will never be right between us and God if we just try to dig down deep and do better. It's never going to solve the problem of humanity. God must disabuse us of any notion that we can make it to God on our own merit. Martin Luther said, one of my favorite Martin Luther quotes, he said, God must first smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help. Then the conscience welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came not to break the bruised reed, nor to quench the smoking flax, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, and to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives. Only when we're broken will we embrace healing from outside of ourselves. Only when with our heads hung low Will we be fully aware of our own failures and our helplessness and then able to look up where there is help from beyond us? Naaman, he's getting there. He's getting there. He's not quite there. He's getting there. But again, God has placed around him people who are going to help him see things clearly. Look at verses 13 through 16. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophets have spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, this is Elisha, said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So first Naaman is angry that Elisha won't answer the door. And then Naaman is angry at the word that Elisha has sent through his messenger. Go and wash in the river Jordan. Are you kidding me right now? Why would I do that? Why would I go to the Jordan River? That's disgusting, he thought. There are two rivers. There were two rivers in or near Damascus. Damascus uh, was the capital of Syria, and, and by the way, the oldest city in the world. It's the oldest sort of continuously populated city in the world. And, and, and so Naaman is thinking, well, there are two rivers that I know of that are way better than the River Jordan. Why would I go into the River Jordan? He's so bothered that he tries to storm off, but his servants. Again, providentially placed there by a sovereign God. They say to him, hold on. Like, You're not even going to do what the prophet said? You're not even going to try it? If they ask you to do something hard, you would have done it, right? You won't do it now that it's so easy. And Naaman, again, he stops in his tracks. And all of a sudden, he obliges. He goes down to the Jordan River, dips himself seven times, and when he emerges, he's clean. No more leprosy. In fact, the text says that his skin was as clean and as clear as that of a little child. Of course, he's amazed. He can't believe this. He actually, he, he's stunned by this. He must find Elisha. And when he does, what does he do? Well, first of all, he confesses the Lord is the only living God. So that's good. He says in verse 15, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So that's, that's good. This is, he believes in the only true God, but he can't just leave it there. He says, so accept now a present from your servant. It wasn't just the simplicity of Elisha's remedy that bothered Naaman so much. It was also the freeness of it. Naaman just can't stand the idea of getting something for free. Because in his economy, in his mind, the only thing that's worth anything is something that is earned. It's something that has to, you have to pay for it. If you don't pay for it, it can't possibly be worth anything. So he insists on repaying Elisha. Elisha says, no. Verse 19, we didn't get to that. We won't get to that. But Elisha says, go in peace. In other words, you can't pay for this. You can't pay for this. Now, what was it that resulted in Naaman's cleansing? It was his faith. His faith. His trust, weak though it was, that by following the words spoken by God through the prophet of God, he would be cleansed, that he would be healed. There was nothing magical about the waters of the Jordan River, nothing salvific about dipping in it seven times. There was not a special spot, a mysterious spot that he had to find in the river that would result in his cleansing. No, it was his faith that made him whole. And more specifically, it was God working through his faith. And it's the same way for us. By faith, we are cleansed from all our uncleanness, all of our filth, all of our unrighteousness. The simple act of believing in God's sovereign grace manifested in his son Jesus who lived for us, who died for us, who was raised for our justification. By faith in Jesus, we are cleansed from all of our spiritual impurities and actually credited with the very righteousness of Jesus. So that when God sees us, he sees us as spotless, covered again with Jesus' righteousness. But just like Naaman, we insist there has to be more. There has to be more to it than that. We want something hard to do. Give me a way that I can earn it. Give me something I can do That I can at least show that I'm deserving of this sort of forgiveness. We want to do hard things because that makes us feel like we've contributed, that we've done our part, so to speak. that, That way, we remain in control. But that's not how the gospel works. When Jesus gave his life on the cross, he said, It is finished. In other words, I've done everything that needs to be done. I've done all the work. There's nothing you can do to add to it. There's nothing else for you to do, hard or easy, in order to be saved. But just like Naaman, those three words on the cross, it is finished, which my son has tattooed on his arm in Greek, those three words are so very hard. For us to accept, just like Naaman, it just doesn't seem right to us. It just doesn't sit well with us. Nick uh, Lenon, who's a pastor and scholar, writes, Our resistance to our no-cost salvation belies in ignorance of the most crucial tenet of our faith. While no pain, no gain is quite true in some areas of life, the pain was suffered by another and need not continue. Here's our final point this morning. Our salvation has been fully purchased by Jesus. Any attempt by us to pay it back in installments is an affront to God. It's not a little thing to God, actually. It is an affront to God. Now, does the fact that Christ has done everything mean that we just sit back on the couch the rest of our lives and just sort of take it easy and don't do anything? And no it doesn't mean that but it does it does change the reason that we do everything we do now everything we do we do not from a position of debt not to repay a debt or not even from the position of being debt free now everything we do we do from the position of already having everything we could ever need in Christ Jesus so with no sin debt to pay off and no condemnation that we're under any longer. We live with a lightness and a freedom and a joy and a laughter that surpasses human understanding. doesn't mean that, of course, we're always going to be happy and always going to be jokey and always going to be lighthearted. But what it does mean is that with all the pressures and the conflicts and the pain the world can throw at us, and some of you are going through things right now I know that are devastating, But with all of that, it means that even in the middle of that, our standing with Christ is secure. No debt hangs over us. So even in the darkest of times, we know that we have a Father who loves us and is for us and who is even now working out all things for our good and His glory. With no love to earn, because our love, God's love is now fully ours in Christ, it means we can love people who don't love us back. With no forgiveness to earn, because God's forgiveness is already completely ours in Christ, it means we can forgive others even if they won't forgive us. With God's settled approval, now ours in Christ, the fact that the God of the universe loves us and actually likes us, it means we're free to tell others about Jesus and not worry whether we're liked or disliked by anybody else. Now we obey God, we give of our money and time, we love our neighbor, we forgive those who have wronged us, never to earn something, but because we love God, who's already given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me just end with this illustration. About 12 or 13 years ago, there was a man in our church. This is a different church in a different state. He asked if we could have breakfast. I said, sure, I'd love to. So we met for breakfast at Panera Bread. and you know we sat and talked for probably 20 minutes and he said there's something I need to tell you I said okay what is it he goes uh my family and I were leaving the church I said oh that why that, that grieves me Now, we had had this year long search for a worship pastor and and hired a guy that he he wanted a totally different sort of direction in music worship and wanted somebody who wrote scores and wrote you know different things and he said i'm just it just doesn't fit us anymore and i said man i'm like, I'm really sorry to hear that. I, that. That breaks my heart. I don't want to see you go. I love your family. Um, and he said, yeah, we, we're, we're moving on to, to a different church. And I said, well, again, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And, and I said, but look, I'm not mad at you. I'm not, I'm not upset. I don't, I don't have any ill will against you. I'm not bitter against you. And I just really wish you the best at wherever God uh, takes you. And he paused for a minute, and he stuck out his arm across the table, Careful to make sure he didn't touch my food. But he stuck out his arm across the table and he said, Man, he said, I wish that I could just have one shot, one shot of your self confidence. I said, What do you mean? He goes, Well, I just told you that we're leaving and you, you, I still believe that you actually care about us. I said, Listen, my friend, that's not self confidence you're seeing. I know that if it's up to me, I'm going to make a meal of it. I'm going to make a whole mess of it. I hope what it is, it's actually belief in the gospel. You know, I, I can't be the sort of person who's up and down all the time according to who likes me and doesn't like me, who stays or who goes. I said, what I have to believe is that I'm fully loved by God in Christ, accepted by God in Christ, approved, liked by God in Christ. And so by the grace of God only, I'm able to, to deal with these things. And so I said to him, it's the same for you if you're in Christ. God already loves you. He's already approved of you. He accepts you. He delights in you. He cares about you. And he has a plan for you that's for your good and his glory. The gospel, which is hinted at and pointed to in this great story about Naaman and and him going down to the river, is actually our only hope in the unevenness and the difficulty of this fallen world. May God impress it upon our hearts. Let's pray.